The deeper back you go through the subspatial levels, the less like the original planet is, and the more UN situations there have been. Thus, E15 is a world of grey ash that settles on it from thousands of volcanoes that have broken through the surface. E14 is nothing but grassy rock, and E13 is primarily a crystalline structure these days. E12 is all jungle, and so on. Nearer to E1, the worlds are more recognisable, particularly E2, E3 and E4. E4 had it lucky, it stopped progressing just before the First World War, but it mainly consists of the British Isles and Southern and Eastern Europe where the rest is either wasteland or water. Friends, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. Here in the north of England, the days have shortened, the wind is biting, and we remain in what is now feeling more and more like a perennial lockdown. Nevertheless, our mojos remain intact, and we hope yours do too. It's been a funny old year, what with a worldwide pandemic, political turmoil, physical separation from friends and family and a rapid expansion in my already well-burgeoned waistline thanks to all of the above. The show's over a year old now, and we're only a couple of weeks out from our second joint Michael Moorcock and Phil birthday show. Incredible, really. It's certainly the case that, as one gets older, time passes more fleetingly, but this year has been truly ridiculous in its haste. But having this show as a hobby has been a real anchor and a source of therapy. Unfortunately, it hasn't replaced my primary form, retail therapy, and my Mocock collection grew again this week with more editions based purely upon being attracted to covers I was unfamiliar with. But, as we more radical, cultist Mocockians know and acknowledge, this is the way. Little Star Wars gag there. On this occasion, I've picked up a couple of the Between the Wars sequence, starring unreliable narrator in extremis, Colonel Pyatt. As we're still only on the final programme with her set, the Colonel is yet to make his debut on the show, but I'll look forward to covering the first of these, Byzantium Endures, sometime soon. Like much of Moorcock's material, they're more relevant now than ever. For now though, we have a special guest co-host, and we're going to look at the broad appeal of Moorcock from the perspective of one of the great creatives of the comic world in the form of the mighty Keck W. We'll touch on comics, naturally, but also a bit of music and a variety of other things as we are blown along by the winds of limbo. So, sit back... Drop some psychedelic prog on your turntable and join us in Darien Toms. And we're back in virtual Darien Toms with a very special guest. It's taken quite a long time for us to hook up, but we got there in the end. It's Keck W, writer, comic creator... 2000 AD script droid, yeah, and uh, writer of one of my favourite recent comics, uh, Fall of Dead World, amongst many, many other things. Um, I must say, Fall of Dead World and the, the black humour and the art by Dave Kendall is right up my street. So uh, thank you for that. I really cool. appreciate glad it. Cool, glad you're enjoying it. 
Yeah, it's it's awesome. And what what else have you been working on recently for the uh, the Galaxy's Greatest? Oh, crikey! What what am I allowed to talk about? That's because uh, sometimes you've got to wait for things to be solicited. And I'm working on quite a long lead time at the moment. So uh, I'm one thing I can probably talk about is I'm working on a new series of The Order with uh, John Burns. So I'm. I've just delivered episode nine. I think John's on about number three. So at the moment, I'm kind of outlining the last sort of furlong or so of, of, of that. I don't know when we'll see that. It's probably quite a way off, probably well into next year, autumn, something like that. Yeah. It'll be a long, long time before I get to it then, because I haven't bought 2000 AD for a long time, but I do tend to pick up the collections. So I picked up uh, the first collection. Um, I think shortly after we spoke probably about eight months ago and uh, i love it but john burns artwork is beautiful as well isn't it so it's a, it's a great combination it's so, it's a it's an honor and a delight to work with him i mean to, uh, he's one of the greats of british illustration you know one of the silver age giants and he's still knocking it out the park now mm. um i mean the americans had kirby ditko wally wood uh i mean we've got john and frank bellamy and you know um mr lawrence don lawrence as well I think they they were our big three, and John's yeah. still still at it. So it's it's a delight to work with him. Yeah. So before we get on to Mocock specifically, how, how did you get involved in in comics and and writing in the first place? Well, uh, I've always loved comics. I think you know I was I was of in a generation where newsagents were full of the the old classic weekly anthologies, Lion, Valiant. Uh, you know, all the stuff that was out there, Hotspur, before yeah. 2000 AD came on the scene. But also I was lucky enough to live through what I would call the peak silver age of Marvel. So Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were absolutely on fire mm. at that point. So as a young kid, I so I was seeing the really great, often quite weird British black and white strips that were coming out. And then you'd see uh, Jack drawing Fantastic Four, Thor, you know, uh, Ditko's Doctor Strange, Jim Steranko. So, you know, I had a big, I was, I was kind of around exactly the right time. And plus, you also got to remember, for a lot of people, this might not kind of be a reference point, but we were right in the heart of the space race back then, you know. Mm. So every other week, uh, the Americans or the Russians would be, you know, putting somebody in orbit and there were beginnings of the moon shots, uh, peak science fiction, uh, sun, not to get all nostalgic, but, you know, two or three TV channels. But Sunday afternoon, 1950s black and white science fiction drive-in films, monster movies, uh, universal horror films, Karloff. So really, all I had to do was just be there. And I mean, you couldn't fail but to be, you know, soak all this stuff up, yeah. you know. So yeah. I think it was almost a brainer that that um, I, I would kind of move towards that. By the time I guess I was just round about pre-teens, early teens, I was already writing stuff bad terrible stuff you know um <laughs> but but sort of just spitting out short stories and kind of didn't have a clue what i was doing but sort of just kind of writing weird science fiction things and fantasy and you know when i was like 12 i guess 13 yeah. uh i had a really good encouraging english teacher when i was 14 mr lee at the school i was 
at, um, you know, and whatever the assignment was, I'd somehow twist it to turn it into like a science fiction or a horror story. And he was great because he never kind of like said, oh, you've gone a bit off road there. He just, you know, he was really encouraging and he'd always write little notes at the end and little doodles. And I only had him for a year, but he he was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, everybody deserves a really good teacher like that. I got to tell you this very quick anecdote. Um, One week we came in and he said, um, you know, we're not going to do anything this week except you're going to sit and listen and I'm going to read a book to you and uh, at the end of the week I want you to tell me you know what you thought about it what it was about how you know your impressions of it so we sat there for a week in English lessons and he read A Clockwork Orange to us so that so <laughs> well, you know so I guess I was like 13 14 and you kind of go holy cow you know yeah. he was great he was a really great English teacher and of course it's written in that weird Russian argot so you start off going, I don't know what this means, vidi and all this, yeah. you know. And, and of course, by day two, you understand what all the slang means, you know, and that was yeah, one of the points. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he was very encouraging. and um, but, but actually, I sort of started out as an artist. I used to, used to draw, draw lots of comics, cartoons, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even though I kind of wrote a bit as a teenager, I then spent many years drawing not that well. I think if I'd spent about another decade at it, I might have been competent. Mm. But in the end, I kind of came back round full circle and started writing again. And I just found it a little bit bit easier because I could see the images in my head. It was just kind of describing them and, you know, making it move forward in a story. Yeah, you're absolutely right, teachers. Um, and I, I never had a teacher who read The Clockwork Orange to me, but um, I had a couple of teachers, one of whom had nothing to do with English, but when I was about eight or nine years old, in his class, he had um, an Eagle annual from probably the late 50s. So that was the first time I ever saw Dan Durr and Frank Hampson's artwork. And he also had a collection of the Tales of the Trigon Empire, which um, with that fully painted artwork, which was absolutely yeah. fantastic and really mind-blowing to like a, a nine-year-old. Um, but I had a, another teacher who was really, really encouraging about reading and was more into things like George Orwell and Animal Farm and things like that. But we were on holiday in Spain, one of those family holidays that you have in the 80s when the Costa Brava was really popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, we bumped into this English teacher, Neil Simmons, lovely guy, and uh, he lent me a load of P.G. Woodhouse books because I'd read all my books in the first week. So he, he lent me, I think, half a dozen P.G. Woodhouse books, a couple of Jeeves, Smith in the City, a couple of other bits and bobs. So wow. he was a super encouraging teacher. It really is priceless, stuff like that. Totally. So, how did you come across Moorcock? Well, here's, here's another long rambling story. Uh, we like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been trying to think about this and I, and I can't exactly nail it, but here's where I think the chronology is roughly. I, I would guess I was round about maybe 11, 12 and I was reading everything under the sun, fantasy, science fiction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, I've got a clear memory of reading the Swords trilogy. Um, so I suspect I may have started with that because I can remember walking home from town one day with my nose either in Knight or Queen of the Swords, literally sort of walking along Hewish, that's a, a street in Yeovil, sort of just unable to put you know like like people would be with a phone now you know unable to put this book down um 
So I suspect maybe the first one might be Knight's Swords, but I got a feeling Final Program was floating around at school at the time. Now, when did that come out? About 69, maybe something like that? The... I think it was published um, as, as shorts in a magazine and then it came out as a, a novel, I think in 68. 68. Yeah. And I guess the film came out early 70s, the John Finch Yeah, the Robert thing. Hughes film, yeah. Yeah, so, so maybe they reissued the book or... Because I can remember that sort of going around my classroom. So I'm a bit sketchy about, did I read Final Program first or something like Night, Night the Sword? But certainly the Swords trilogy stuck in my head and then then it was off reading Elric mm. and then finding all these other things and going, this is mind-blowing. Like, they're all, <laughs> they're all the same guy, yeah. <laughs> you know, at different points in time and space. I think I really liked that, that this interconnectedness. And because I'd grown up reading Marvel comics, you know, Stan Lee had this integrated Marvel comics universe where Daredevil would meet Spider-Man and the Avengers would fight the Fantastic Four. I really dug that whole thing. Hey, here's a writer who's got different characters, but not only do they know one another, but they're sort of different aspects of the same person. So I think mm. that re I could really get into that. What what is it about Mocock? What's the appeal of Mocock? I mean, that's a pretty sophisticated classroom to be passing around the final programme. Um, I think when I was 11 or 12, it was The Rats by James Herbert when we were all getting struggle off teachers and getting them confiscated. <laughs> well, I, was, I, was, I mean, I was going to laugh you saying about that, you know, um, that that w would be going round, but, you know, also sort of like a dodgy copy of Penthouse magazine <laughs> might be at the back of the class. And I always remember um, uh, one of my classmates around about that time, you know, Spike Milligan, you know, reading Spike Milligan. Yeah. Um, oh, what was the, oh God, my brain's gone dead. Not my partner's downfall before that. Um, one of his Irish things, it's a slightly, it was a racy comedy. Well, it was to like 12 year old boys. Yeah. Uh, Oh, it'll come to me later when we finish this call. But but yeah, stuff like that would be floating around. Um, you know, it was kind of bright, young, kind of pubescent boys mm. with too much time and stuff on their hands, you know. But I think we all kind of went through that reading Lord of the Rings and finding maybe mm. bits of it dull and then reading Moorcock and going, holy shit, this is great. You know, this is more vivid and modern um you could read it in a in a one or two fast sessions it read like a comic book i think to a degree it had that rat -a tat tat to it uh the visuals obviously when i was a little bit older you can you kind of look at it and go well that's obviously lsd or uh, masculine in that scene you know all the colors and stuff very very vivid um you know it just made tolkien look like i don't know like you your granddad's fantasy, as it were, mm. you know, and also hand in glove with Hawkwind, Black Sabbath, you know, it's yeah. every young teen boy's thing, really. And it, it felt like an, it's weird because a lot of people say to me, How, why do you like that stuff? It's very proggy and unpunk. I kind of disagree because a lot of my classmates later on were listening to Yes and Genesis, but that whole Hawkwind thing, it was very anti-establishment and, and proto-punk. And Moorcock seemed to sort of fit with that, if you get what I mean, that whole um, Mick Farron, 
you know, Labrick Grove, yeah. Jerry Cornelius, it all sounded really on the number, you know. Um, it was kind of hippie-ish, but, but, but felt sharper and cooler, you know. Yeah, that's the beauty of that early Hawkwind stuff, isn't it? It's if, if you judge yeah. Hawkwind by some of their later output, you don't really get you don't get anything like the full picture. No, totally. Those first five or six albums, I mean, it's, it's seminal stuff. Mm. Um, and I think it really was a good fit as well because Hawkwind weren't really into doing, you know, they, they would never do Tales from Topographic Oceans, for example, <laughs> or, so, or something, you know, kind of navel gazy and 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 lengthy and experimental and and boring. <laughs> Hawkwind were never ever boring. And I'm actually quite. I, I actually quite like a lot of Yes stuff. But yeah, I mean, me too. Later on in life, you know, I I, I grew to appreciate some of that more. You know, and, and yeah. later on, I got into jazz and and loved all that stuff. But uh, as a young teen, you know, I liked the riffage of it. You know, the yeah. the, the heavy. It, it felt very working class. For, you know, I mean, Black mm. Sabbath were very, you know, brummy lads. You got that vibe off of Hawkwind. They were very punk very down to earth, uh, countercultural. Uh, you could wrap your head around the riffs, but it was also, you know, there were spacey bits in it. Mm. It's just a perfect soundtrack. Mm. That then got me into, you know, Krautrock, Amondul, Can, and all that sort of stuff, which felt like the German counterpart to what they were doing. Yeah. So very heady times, you know. I was exactly the right age for all that. And then, of course, you know, a few years later, you hit punk, and that's just that refreshes the whole thing again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think your your point about them being kind of short, sharp, punchy, and of course, you know, we've, we've all had those stories about Mocock basically writing them in three days. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and his his, uh, his his rules how to write a book in three days. But I think when we covered uh, Jewel in the Skull, my co-host for that was Natasha, and she dubbed it a one shit book. <laughs> <laughs> And she's and she's not far wrong, to be fair. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, when it comes to is is kind of is is broader stuff, you know, outside of the Eternal Champion stuff. When we talked about it last year, we were talking about the Rituals of Infinity, weren't we? Yeah. Um, and and some of his his sixties science fiction output was so far in advance of anything I'd ever read, and some some of them are, are quite slight, and and although they're a quick read. A couple of haven't stayed with me at all, but things like the Ritual Infin- Rituals of Infinity and uh, is it the Blood Red Game? Yeah. Um, some of the concepts in those books are are just have stuck with me for even though I haven't read them for thirty years. I grabbed my copy of Rituals of Infinity earlier because uh, we were talking about earlier in the year, mm. and, and again I I very much it folds into that period in my life a little bit later after I was reading the the, the science fantasy sword sorcery stuff. Um, but the edition I read, I think, is kind of around about 74, 75. Mm. Um, as you say, it's kind of a slight book, but we read it earlier because I thought we'd be doing a thing about this. But I really enjoyed it. It's um, It feels like a 70s book, yeah. but of course it's it, it's a repackaging of um, a, a mid-60s one, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. But, but rereading it, when I read it, I felt it was very much, you know, on the zeitgeist um, when I was reading it in the 70s. And rereading it now, it feels like a 70s book. So I think you're right. It feels maybe it was, a, you know, eight to ten years kind of ahead of itself. It's hard to quantify that, but it, it's just it's got a vibe about it. Um, mm. I, I mean, to us living in kind of 
slightly dull post uh, post World War Two Britain, you know, the idea of characters wearing T-shirts and sneakers yeah. and Hawaiian shirts. I know that sounds kind of a bit cod, but th- there's a kind of weird hipness to it, but it doesn't feel forced with Moorcock, you know. Yeah. Um I can kind of just in my head rereading it, you know, when he's going around, sort of driving around San Francisco. It reminds me of films like The Amiga Man, you know, yeah. driving around in the the big kind of um, open top car around a slightly kind of post-apocalyptic city, you know. So you've got like, instead of Charlton Heston, it's this, I guess, like an analogue of Michael Moorcock, isn't it? Yeah, the, the that's right. Faustaff. He just he kind of mocks himself, describes himself being a bit overweight, and there he is in these shoddy old jeans and sneakers yeah. or shorts or whatever. Um, and he's got the chick in the car with him, and it's yeah. but but you know that but the world's collapsing, you yeah. know, it's sort of it, that almost feels to me like climate collapse on fast forward, all that sort of stuff. But again, I, I don't know, I think this feels like um. Stop me if you you know if I'm wrong because you you put you're fresher with all this stuff than me. This is just kind of a vibe. It feels like Rituals of Infinity is a tryout for the multiverse. The yeah. the the fact that that you know you've got this well in space and there's different versions of this planet uh, of, of Earth, um, and and one by one they're being sabotaged, killed by the bad guys, blowing up. But it almost feels like he's putting an idea together in his head. What if there were loads of different Earths, you know? Mm. In mm. this one, he kind of destroys them as he goes along. But I'm wondering if a bit later, you know, perhaps that fed into the sort of um, the, the whole eternal champion thing and them all being aspects of, you know, but on different Earths. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting rereading all these again. When, when I was reading Rituals of Infinity, when we were talking about it, it's, I'll, I'll mention what it brought brought to my mind in a moment. But on on that subject of the multiple worlds, I think Moorcock is definitely somebody who who is has no problem whatsoever recycling himself and recycling his own ideas and 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 developing them. Totally. And when we did the Eternal Champion uh, a couple of months ago. One of our listeners, um, Simon Perrins, who who done our brand and ID for the podcast and done some fantastic work, did me an amazing Jerry Cornelius commission. Um, he, he pointed out that in the original short story of The Eternal Champion, which I think dates to something like 1959, the elements of The Eternal Champion are there. It's just all the names are different. So if you read The Eternal Champion novel, when it from the I don't know uh, late sixties or early seventies publication, when he's having his dreams, he's talking about Elric. He's talking about um, so some of the names are different. He re- refers to Coram Mac Brannan or something, and then in later versions, it's changed to Coram Helen Essie. But in the late sixties version, it's Alexander and a whole host of other kind of made-up names. So even in the late 50s, he had this idea of the eternal champion. I had no idea it'd gone back that far. Yeah, it's amazing, really. I I, I need to Google all that. So so Rituals of Infinity actually is maybe like more like a placeholder between that. Well, I had that idea in the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Let's play around with this. And then in the late 60s, it starts taking shape a bit more. And Uh, I think he's one of those authors. He's He's got an idea. And he writes so prolifically and so quickly. You know, in the 60s, he, he was knocking them out on the bog. You know, yeah. he, he was knocking them out so quickly. So all these ideas just just mature and, and, and ferment. 
and 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 become something new. So yeah, we found covering the Italian champion that we read. That there's a, there's a paragraph where he's um, asleep and he's remembering all these names with the versions of that paragraph. The 1959 shot, wow. the late 60s version, and the version from the latest Gallant's collection where he's revised a lot of his stuff again. So even though he's recycling his own ideas and um, rewriting ideas into new books, he's revising his books yeah. <laughs> as well to kind of match what he's done later on down the line as he's recycled. So trying to unpick it all, um, there's just no point trying. You just experience it and, and you experience the epiphanies as you go along and you make the connections as you go yeah. along. It's, it's just, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so rewarding reading him. What does the 59, you said that was a short story, what's that appearing? I think it was originally published in the magazine that he was um, editing or working on, um, which the name of which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's in one of the Golanx collections. So what I'll do is, I'll I'll take snaps of each different version of the paragraph and send you them. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, that'd be I, really cool. It was also um, it was printed in a, a role playing game magazine, Adventurer or Imagine or something like that in the eighties as well. Good grief! Uh, yeah, it's 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 just rereading the Eternal Champion was a really interesting experience. But um, yeah, that that one was a a really good indicator because again, when when we covered, I think, the Dreaming City. Loz was reading a version published in the 70s and I was reading a version published in the late 60s. And again, there were subtle differences. So every time he's, he's, he's yeah. kind of revised his Elric line, he's made subtle changes to kind of fit them into everything else. So it's just it's just part of his deal and it makes it, makes it all the more interesting and all the more exciting to get <laughs> to get a new version. And, you know, when you go down the rabbit hole, you end up with four or five different editions of books just because you like the different covers there's also that nice little um prompt to actually read them just in case there's, there's a surprise in there warlord of the air is another one i got warlord of the air the ace pocket books edition from the late 60s off pops and then i got a version in the 80s as a grafton omnibus and um key characters in the first 60 pages of that are, are completely different good grief yeah it's funny, I was thinking about this last night, uh, you're saying about the revisions and, and, and going through stuff. Um, I, I'm almost tempted to say he can't, he's like a remixer, you know, mm. in music terms, you'd, you'd remix somebody else's track or remix your own, yeah. do different versions of it. Yeah. He's almost doing that with his own stories, his own books changing context of things, or he's now older and he goes, oh, I don't like that aspect of it, or I want to make this more maybe anti-colonial in this, you yeah. know, with Warlord of the Air. Uh, my politics have evolved. My views of the world have evolved. I'm less sexist or whatever. Yeah. So they, they these all kind of get rolled in. And, and, and like you say, it's it becomes a subtly different animal as you go along. Yeah. Um, you just assume one from 30 years ago is the same book, but it clearly isn't. Yeah. One of my big loves for Murcock is the fact that even in the 60s, even in the original and revised texts, he was really, really, I don't know if left wing is the right the right um, description, but he was anti-colonial, anti-war, yep. anti-tyranny. Um, the, the, the final programme is just uh, absolutely staggering when you read a late 60s edition of that and think, you know, how on earth... Um, did people take it at the time? And I suppose he got away with it because it was science fiction. So no, so nobody was going to kick the doors down because his, his main protagonist was, in the first couple of pages, revealed to be bisexual, but with no lascivious or critical or judgmental 
um, angle on it. He just was. Yep. Yep. You know, and and, and later on, there's there's all sorts of conversations about, um, you know, people of different sexualities being the future. Um, it's just incredible stuff. And I, the, the I, stuff in the wall out of the air that he changed, funnily enough, was, and I can't remember which way around it was, but there's there's a scout leader on the airship in the first 40 or 50 pages who was just a massive prick. And in one version, it's Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's alternate universe, what Robert Ronald Reagan. But in the other version, it isn't. It's changed it. And I, can't I thought you were going to say Baden Powell for a, for a moment, because uh, yeah. I was reading some bit of stuff about Baden Powell a couple of years ago, and Jesus Christ, that yeah. how he was even allowed around children is. <laughs> yeah, phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think it was Baden Powell whose hobby was watching executions in Africa. Yeah, he's. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's fair enough to call him a monster, isn't it? Mm, that yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this this character in Warlord of the Air is the Baird and Powell type, but I'm I'm guessing it must be the Grafton collection from the eighties I've got where he turns him into Ronald Reagan. Because in the <laughs> late sixties he was still an actor, so it wouldn't have made any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to totally. He he talks in a lot of his books, especially um perhaps the older ones where they talk about the stuff of chaos, mm. you know, where you, you, you meet the chaos gods or whatever. And there's this um, malleability of matter, colours swirl and blob around like you're inside a, a lava lamp and all that stuff. But that almost kind of defines his fiction, you know, what in the kind about his stories are elastic, they're malleable, yeah. you know, that, that story is different to how it was five years ago or 10 years ago. The characters morph, change within a story or within ver different versions of the books. I really like that. I'm not sure. Is there any other writers that have so drastically revised their work? No, I, not not that I'm aware of, and I don't think there are any other writers who've who've gone so hell for leather to really kind of all, almost examine their own oeuvre, yeah, one of a better expression, and just and just reinvent it. And I'm, I'm not I'm not massively bought into some of the stuff he did in the eighties and nineties and two thousands with the Elric character. Uh, it'll be interesting to get back to reading him again for the first time as as we progress through this through this this podcast. At this rate, probably in about twenty thirty four, but it's like the the between the wars books that he wrote in, between the eighties and nineties. I think there was a big gap in the last one. He takes Colonel Pyre and Mrs Cornelius, and throws them into like a massive um, study of the history of the twentieth century with with various figures and and Colonel Pyatt, who was yep. just a bit part player in the in the Jerry Cornelius novels ends up becoming this unreliable narrator across these four sprawling books that look at the history of the 20th century. There's nobody else who, who does anything like that. No, it, se it seems a really kind of counterintuitive move to make. Um, you know, one, one decade he's bashing out kind of late era pulp, yeah. uh, you know, newsstand fiction, it's very much on the zeitgeist. It's very zappy. It's very now. It's very modern, very postmodern, you know, all this breakdown of character and, and, and plot and all this. Then the next second, well, not the next second, but he evolves off into, like you say, these doorstep books, mm -hmm. you know, that are fascinated with history and, 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 and reinvent. Well, I suppose that's a remix as well, isn't it? He's, he's saying, what would it have been like to have been in Paris in that year or yeah, uh, Constantinople that year, but an imaginary one. There's enough 
reference points to anchor it to our world. But um, as you say, through the eyes of a unreliable narrator, but I can now remix reality. Is that what yeah. he's kind of doing there? Yeah, he, here's another, you know, if the world's a, a jewel with different facets on it, I'm going to look at a different facet of it and, and maybe to amplify that and turn that into a, to a different thing. I, I remember reading one of those. I went on holiday with my, my now wife, uh, we were in Greece and took one of these, like say, the walloping great things. I forget which one it was, but I think Pyatt gradually becomes more and more addicted to cocaine as it goes along. So mm. it becomes more and more uh, insane and ranty, yeah. uh, you know, anti-Semitic as well. I think it was leading yeah. up to sort of the, you know, the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. The the amazing thing about it now, talking you know, that's 20 years ago I read that. Talking to you about that, there's a weird prophetic parallel between then and now. Mm. I'm now thinking of, you know, coke-addled celebrities, yeah. fake fake news, you know, the cult of Trump and, and, and the alt-right, well, conspiracy it's, it's, theories. You, you know, it feels like that. That's he's almost preemptively going towards conspiracy theory culture. It's, it's funny you say that. The other day, I picked up uh, an, another copy of The Laughter of Carthage, simply because it had a cover that I'd never seen before. For the benefit of people listening, I'll, I'll pop a picture of this on the blog post. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, is, my if, God. If, if, if that isn't <laughs> current. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And it's just what I keep finding every time I go back and read something by him. I'm just like... This this is ridiculous. This this is this book is fifty odd years old in some cases. Um, you know they're older than me, a lot of them, and reading them, they're just as fresh and progressive, and they feel as progressive because I, I think fantasy fiction. I, I don't read that many modern fantasy novels because I think they've got so stuffed and bloated and a little bit stared. There are interesting ideas and interesting concepts. Um, but I don't know. Nothing. Nothing really, really grabs me about modern fantasy. So, I have to agree with you there. I mean, that's an un unfair thing to say, and probably there'd be a lot of people listening to this going, "But what about my favourite author?" And it's yeah. it, it's cool. There's there's enough for everybody. Of course, there but, is. but I think generally with you, I I kind of almost hate to get stuck on things like this, you know, because it feels like you're looking at the past through uh, nostalgic optics, um, rose-tinted lens, that kind of thing. Oh, you know, that was my era and I don't really like any new stuff. Yeah. That's not strictly true. But but I do find his work particularly rich, you know, and as we're saying, it does seem to be oddly prophetic mm. in some ways. And I, I don't really find that with a lot of modern authors. I, I love China Melville. I, th I think, you know, his, his stuff's fabulous. Um, Again, I, I I love the politics of what he what he does, and he's also part of that circle, isn't he? With 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 Moorcock and Alan Moore and and Steve Aylett. Um, oh, I, I kind of I love yeah. Steve Aylett. He's he's fantastic. I think <laughs> yeah. abs absolutely wonderful. I th I think he's I, I I wish more people would read his stuff. He's 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 wonderful. I I'm not sort of um, big on humour books. This sounds terrible, but uh, a lot of stuff just doesn't make me laugh. I think yeah. when I'm told to laugh, oh, this book's funny, it'll make you laugh. It kind of doesn't. 
his stuff is one of the few things where I've just laughed out loud virtually on every page. But again, the satire and it mm. just it, it, it finds its target. Yeah, funny enough, it's, Steve Aylett did a um, he did a, an at the end of time book. Yes, he did, which I've never read. I must something. I, I picked it up a while back, but I still haven't got around to reading it. Uh, my favourite Steve Aylett book, The Name Escape for me, is the one about the the, uh, the fictional author. Oh, um, Lint, Jeff Lint. Lint. Yeah, I picked Lint up from a second-hand bookshop in London years ago and read it on the train home, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was brilliant. It is, it is utterly great. I got yeah. some lint badges. He sent me some badges. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a lint badge here yeah. somewhere. I don't know. But, but yeah, um, yeah, I mean, those guys, you can see why they form a vague – they're all different, but they form a vague formation in terms of politics, satire. There's layers to their work. Um, I, I don't know, but it's sort of Mike Moorcock, I guess, is that is, is, is – the Godfather, the granddaddies, the the the, you know, those guys are sort of in his not in his wake. I don't mean it that way. They're all great writers, but I can see how they've kind of bundled together as a loose, coherent collective of of, of people. You know, yeah. um, I must admit, you know, I really like all their stuff. China's stuff, I think, is fantastic. Mm. Um, he's one of the few sort of guys, I guess, working in fantasy loosely that whose stuff very rarely disappoints me it's always bundled thick with ideas and political undertones and satires and the ideas in there are great the language is great um even his kids books are just terrific i think but mocock was always one of those guys wasn't he who who always had a kind of a community of writers around him yeah Uh, and and when you talk about remixing, he allowed people to remix Jerry Cornelius in the 60s and 70s. So M. John Harris and Brian Aldiss and people like that wrote Jerry Cornelius short stories. But, you know, to some degree, he was responsible for getting Philip K. Dick in print in the UK in the 60s because he, he, he nurtured what he liked, which I think is such a fabulous quality that he, he would he would look around him he would get writers published in new worlds he would he would talk to publishers and have a word in the rear to get get them a break and he always had this kind of community of people around him and it's similar i suppose with the music that yes with, with hawkwind and i hate to be a heretic but i think when it comes down to some of the songs that he's been involved in i think i probably fall a little bit on the blue oyster cult side just because of veteran of the psychic wars which is probably my favorite track co-written or involved with Moorcock and um, but it's, it's, it's kind of always had that around him which is it's, it it makes him seem like a really warm generous person and that makes him more appealing yeah there's I, I think you're absolutely right there's a there's a social aspect to, to what he does or did um, with new worlds etc um, so I'm I'm kind of not surprised he's got this loose affiliation with guys now. He's always had an eye, I think, on 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 what's floating around, who's floating around, who to keep an eye on, mm. um, but but without copying. Yeah, you know, I, I I've never seen him, never seen him as a, you know, a stylist. But I guess if you had him on here now, he'd interrupt and say, "Well, I'd have bollocks, you know. I love <laughs> Ch- Ch- love Chesterton. I loved you know X, Y, yeah. and Z." Of course he does, but that's that's before my my time. Yeah. I seem very much, I guess, um, as a, as a postmodernist writer, I suppose, because he really came into his own in the seventies, and mm. we're talking about remixing and 
fluidity, um, the, the, the idea of unreliable narrators, um, that, that the author is not the perceived font of knowledge, like, uh, you, you know, you write a book and I'm going to tell you something really important here. This is my big view of the world and you as the reader will either understand that or not. Mm. If you don't bugger off that kind mm. of Ayn Rand sort of thing, here is my worldview. Moorcock's very, like you say, uh, there's a lot of humanity in it and there's warmth. Uh, there's a sense of community in there, social aspects to it. He's always critiquing stuff. His characters are looking at the world through a sour, sardonic eye or um, even his villains have got something useful to say about how how they became what they became, how they mm. became a v villain, how why they're bourgeois. Um, he writes with sympathy, I think, even for his bad guys to a degree. So says speaks a lot of his own humanity, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and he's um, he, he's also not afraid at all of having his his hero, his protagonist, as a two dimensional monster, and and the supposed antagonists being more uh, yeah in depth um, and and actually turning things around to to a degree. So sometimes his eternal champion characters are just a cipher, really. Yeah, or an arsehole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You kind of think, wait a minute, this is the protagonist. I'm not yeah. really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or, really? or, or an out and out fascist dickhead, you know, yeah. like, yes, in the case of Ericos. So, of, of course, Moorcock has um, made decent forays into the world of comics as well, hasn't he? You know, not, not only being adapted by other people like um, Roy Thomas and P. Craig Russell and people like that, but actually writing his own. Um, series that like the multiverse comics and, and collaborating with um, Walter Simonson and um, oh the name's John Ridgeway I think John Ridgeway of course yeah. Yeah, John Ridgeway and and what do you make of his what do you make number one of his of his comics output but number two how it, how he was adapted in the seventies by the likes of Marvel and people like that I can see sort of that Roy Thomas being the big Robert E Howard fan etc. Uh, I guess you could say Roy, Roy Thomas probably popularised Conan, didn't he, in a major yeah. way, almost single-handedly. Um, Roy was still a relatively young guy at the time. I think Roy Thomas was 80 last week. Really? So oh, he's the same generation as Mike, isn't yeah. he? So um, he would have been very aware, I guess, of the, of the Elric, Elric stuff and the, what were they called, the Saga Group? Uh, Lynn Carter and Co. Right. Yeah. Is it sort of? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what Saga stands for. One of the S's is Sword and Sorcery. Ah, Sword and yeah, Sorcery. That, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That bunch. So, yeah. so Roy Thomas would have been aware of those guys, I guess, the Flashing Swords uh, anthologies and all those sorts of things. So I suppose it's not a leap and a, a huge leap and a jump to sort of say, can we use um, Elric in a Conan story, you know, yeah. with, with a fellow Brit, Barry Smith, drawing it? I'm not sure what year yeah. that would have been, 71, 72, somewhere. One of the most wonderful stories about that is that um, Barry Windsor Smith didn't have a frame of reference for Elric, so somebody gave him the late 60s ace pocketbook edition with a cover by Jack. I can't remember, but it's Elric with a pointy hat. 
Hence the pointed hat. Hence the the red pointed hat and the um and the kinky boots. Pixie and, hat. And the green coat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that was the only frame of reference he had was the sixties pocketbook edition of, of Stormbringer. And uh, like he escaped from a gone album cover. Pothead pixie there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it does kind of work. He did Barry Smith did get that kind of um you know, slightly fragile, elegantly wasted old Beano. Yeah. You know, the cipher for smackhead cipher, isn't it? Really, yeah, uh, thin, pale guy has to take his meds before um, he can get into a sword fight. That sort of <laughs> sort of thing. Um, I mean, I love that run on Conan, Barry Smith, the early John Buscemi's stuff. Uh, fantastic stuff. I mean, really, really great. Um, you're mentioning the latest sort of um, multiverse stuff. Now, I haven't read those in years, and I've only got two or three issues of that floating around here somewhere, and I must find them and dig them out. But I'm a big Walt Simonson fan. I love his stuff. He challenges cha channels Jack Kirby. Um, Philippe Douillet, I think, in my in my estimation, the, fr the French artist mm. um, contemporary with Mobius, He's got that great drama of Kirby about him, but does these wonderful, strange, uh, almost Lovecraft-esque uh, cities and monoliths and things. So he was a great match, I think, for Moorcock. You know, he brought a bit of element of cosmic horror and grandeur to it. And I remember John Ridgway, but I can't remember what jo John Ridgway did. Did he do the old Beano detective stuff? Um, he did in the multiverse comic. It was Elric in the Middle Ages. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah I was thinking he was doing the Victorian Edwardian um, yeah, detective the, thing, the Monsieur Zenith stuff. That's yeah. It. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd have to dig them out and see see who the artist was on that. But funnily enough, um, on the subject of Walt Simonson, um, one of our friends on Twitter, Anthony Picante, pointed out uh, a few days ago that um, Moorcock and Walt Simonson almost did a Shazam run. Really? Yeah. Amazing what you learn from, that's, from people you talk to on Twitter. Yeah. That's kind of nuts. I, I can't even can't even imagine yeah. <laughs> how that would read, what that would be like. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I love what both of those guys doing. So as a writer myself, I'm trying to, in my head, see, you know, what, what, what a... A Walt Simonson Captain Marvel, DC Captain Marvel Shazam would look like, yeah. how Moorcock would write it. Mm. Okay, I might have to later go and have a lie down and see if <laughs> I figured that out. Because you always think of, um, you know, Shazam, Captain Marvel being that soft, rounded, C.C. Beck, Fawcett comics thing. You know, there's very, very everything circular, soft, marshmallowy physique. That, that's the Captain Marvel of my era, my generation. Obviously, these days, he's not drawn like that. Whereas Walt Simonson's art's very angular, mm. blocky blacks. So so I'm kind of like going, what would that look like? You know, and, and trying to imagine how Moorcock would dialogue it. Sorry, mm. I'm just going off on a fanboy no, thing no, there because I just kind of, in my head, I'm thinking, wow, that's a great might have been. Yeah. I just got to get a thing in about John Ridgway while I'm here, you know, as a as a as a advert. I, I love John Ridgway's stuff. I mean, in the UK, I think he's he's appreciated amongst yeah. 
Brit comic book fans, probably not as widely known as he should be. He's somebody I would dearly love to work with. So if John Ridgway is not going to be listening to this, but if somebody knows him, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, <laughs> I'd love to do something with John Ridgway. I don't think he's retired. I could be wrong, um, but I don't know. He's somebody. I'm, I'm very out of touch with 2000 AD. Is, is Luke Kirby still a thing, or is that a thing? Oh God, no. Uh, that's it, it. Got reprinted a couple of years ago. Um, that was written by Alan McKenzie, who was the thug that got me into the business in the right. early nineties. Um, I really liked Alan. He's still he's still out there doing bits and pieces. Um, he was a really good guy. He's a really great editor who kind of taught me the basics of of doing pro work. He wrote Luke Kirby with with John, so we're talking, oh, I guess, round about that period, night four, night five, night six. Yeah. Um, Alan Alan left Egmont Fleetway as it was at the time. I think maybe even been fired. Um, it's taken a long time for Luke Kirby to get reprinted. And it's got a lot of love in the last year or two because people kind of say, my God, this is like a proto Harry Potter, but way better. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's got that naturalistic feel to it. Um, John's got, I don't mean in a derogatory way, he's got a very scratchy, almost sketchy way of drawing and I absolutely adore it. Yeah. And um, the 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 boy magician Luke Kirby I love the way he draws it it's it does feel like one of those wonderful kind of rite of passage boyhood stories from a fifties or sixties annual but it's got yeah. a little bit more it's more knowing you know it's great yeah I think John Ridgeway arrived for me um, in the the Dead Man strip oh yes the first yes, Necropolis yes. thing for Judge Dredd where you had a simultaneous run you had Will Simpson drawing Judge Dredd at the time. And then you had that kind of concurrent run of John Ridgeway doing the Dead Man, and then the because the because of his his, his art style was so non-sci-fi, and so what you think to be antithetical to to classic Judge Dredd. That's what made the climax and the shock work so brilliantly. I remember reading that and and the penny drops that the Dead Man in John Ridgeway's art is Dread, and it was like it was absolutely mind blowing. I think that was that was one of the few instances i can remember in comics where i had a mind-blown epiphany in the same way that i've had reading a mocock book and making a connection between two characters 15 years apart or something like that you know it was absolutely incredible i love his art it's wonderful it's it's an inspired choice of artists you know i i, I don't know how else to describe it it's, it kind of grounds it and as you say it, th it throws the viewer off course, you know, because you, yeah. you just don't associate that look or that feel with dread at all, you know. Yeah. It's kind of grubby and dirty and, yeah, <laughs> grubby bandages. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you know, how, how would you feel about adapting, as a comics writer and a writer, how would you feel about adapting Moorcock? Jeez. <laughs> Is that uh... a gig you'd, you'd go for? I'm not sure that he's a huge fan of people. I could be wrong doing stuff, you know, to, uh, adapting, uh, working with. No, actually, that that's contradicting what we're saying earlier, isn't it? Where where uh, Jerry Cornelius was given over to remixing. You know, Jerry Cornelius is a process. Yeah. I think it's something um, 
I probably spend a couple of days going, geez, where do I start? You'd be kind of slightly in awe of it. Or I'd certainly I wouldn't even go near it without his blessing, you know, and I'd take a long run up to it, I think. Um, he's, he's very much um, he's, he's still in that space where he's very much celebrating other people's adaptations. A few oh, right. years, yeah, a few years ago, um, a, a couple of a French writer and a, a French artist adapted Elric of Malnibonair, and volume one's called The Ruby Throne, and it's absolutely beautiful artwork. I'm, I'm not overly taken on the um, the adaptation and the Elric character, but the artwork is is completely beautiful. It's stunning. But Mocock himself said that uh, if he'd rewritten those books again back in the day, he would have adapted. He, he would have adopted some of the changes that they made, and he he thinks it's it's the best adaptation that there's ever been. Well, that's a very cool and generous aspect, uh, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I I, I would be. Just now thinking about, well, I'm not really sure where I'd go. I I mean, I believe there's a bit of a beef with Grant Morrison going on, you know, or there was in recent years. Yeah. So I, 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 I did wonder whether he was uncomfortable with some comic book work that, that mined him. But perhaps perhaps the difference is don't borrow from me, don't plagiarise, uh, but if you ask me and you're respectful, it's okay, I guess. that's Maybe that's the difference. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think perhaps if, if someone like Grant Morrison had said, you know, I'd, I'd really, really love to do a take on Jerry Cornelius, he probably would have said, yeah, great, go for it, but he didn't. He did Gideon Stargrave, um, and, and I think that's... Because I think Grant Morrison's had a beef with Alan Moore as well, hasn't he? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... There just there just seems to be something around certain creatives who just get into beefs with people. I guess I don't know enough about Grant Morrison to to really have an opinion. I think I read Arkham. Did he do Arkham Asylum back in the day with um with the Bill Sinkovich artwork, which I thought was really really good. Dave, but I don't really Dave know McCain, I think McKee Dave McCain. McCain. Yeah, I don't really know that much about um about Grant Morrison's work. He's other somebody than what I, he did in two thousand AD, of course, back in the day. I used to read a lot of his stuff back in the day um but weirdly arkham asylum is one of the most famous ones i've never read it yeah it's a triumph more of mood and style um and beautiful artwork it was it, it came out round about that time where graphic novels of as as just works of beautiful painted artwork suddenly became a thing um you know we, we take it for granted now just just look at yeah. the work on fall of dead world it's that was something something like that in the 80s was like a massive prestige thing in comics whereas whereas now you've got people like dave just throwing this beautiful stuff out at a rate and i don't know if it's a rate of dots but there's so much of this beautiful beautiful artwork in comics now we're absolutely spoiled D dave is well dave may disagree with me but he's in my view boy he's a fabulous artist great guy as well but he is in my view pretty quick Mm. Um, he, he may go, no, I'm not, you know, do you realize I spend 18 hours a day? But, but I mean, a, an episode of that, when, when we're on deadlines for stuff, Dave will turn an episode around in, in, in a fortnight. Wow. So week, week one would be pencils. And then about a week later, the, the painted artwork turns up in my inbox, um, I mean, everybody sees the end product, which is mm. gorgeous. I'm lucky enough to see the pencils, the the midway stage. Yeah. 
and D Dave's pencils are really great. There's a lot of um, kinetics in his work. There's a lot of movement, life, vibrancy. Um, I think with some painted artwork, I'm not talking about Dave here, but but because of the the density of the colour and, and and the way sometimes the printing's not always, you know, sympathetic. Yeah. Some painted work can feel very, very static, um, you know, like a series of paintings, basically. But D Dave's doesn't, I don't think. But his pencils, you know, there's a lot of life in them. And, and uh, it's almost a shame, I think, people don't don't see his penciled stuff. Mm. Um, you know, there's, I don't know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Glenn Faby a few years ago. It's got, it's got a sinewiness, sinew, sinew. Yes, yeah. is that even a word to it? Uh, muscularity, but not yeah. if, if, things do seem to be in motion. And sorry, I'm doing all sorts of miming here that you can't see, <laughs> like a, doing a weird Marcel Marceau sort of, you know, dopamine swirl thing. Uh, Dave's got that, you, you know, there's curves in it and motion. Yeah. Um, I'm really over egging this, aren't you? You can tell I'm a writer. Uh, so it, it's almost. Would love people sometimes. Dave would go, no, I don't want people to see my pencils. That's me working out, solving problems, you know. Yeah. But I, I think his pencils are really handsome, and it's 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 always lovely when I get they, they come in, you know, for the for the editor to sign off. You know, you're happy with how we've laid this out, and I was was kind of lean back in my chair a bit and go, ooh, ooh, I can see what's coming, you know. And then about a week later you get this beautifully rendered colored stuff so yeah a uh, long way around the block there dave's pretty fast i think in my opinion um you know g given the quality of his work it's very, very sumptuous and his color choices are amazing but his yeah. pencils are great people just don't get to see that i don't think no for everybody who's, who's, who's listening check out the um, fall of dead world volumes um for keck's work and dave's artwork it really is staggeringly beautiful in a deeply disturbing, <laughs> disturbing way. Now, Sorry, what, what really struck me about there. that artwork was when I was a kid, and I remember this. This was at Naren Pops's house in the seventies. My uncle got um, the War of the Worlds Jeff Wayne album for the first time, and with a booklet, and um, and it terrified me when I was six or seven years old. Because I remember looking at the cover, and the cover the cover terrified me for a start. But reading through, there's there's a picture of the red weed all over um like some ruined houses and it has that glistening disturbing melted flesh kind of quality and what i love about dave's work in fall of dead world is it i have those racket feelings related to being absolutely appalled and terrified as a seven-year-old and it kind of it, it brings them back to mind but i'm now old enough to not be kind of repulsed by it or, or terrified by it i can appreciate how, how beautiful the artwork is just how he manages to inject the black comedy into elements of it, whilst it being, in many ways, beautifully repulsive, <laughs> if, if that's the right way of describe it. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I mean, what what you just described there, I, I think that kind of sums up his work. And there's this wonderful, uh, I don't know, like melding uh, of the organic and the inorganic. So you've you know the, you've got bones and flesh and skin. Yeah. And you put it against rubble and buildings and there's this point at which they almost seem to fuse and, uh, you know, 
the 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 humans and the dark judges are like a blight, a, you know, a fungal infection on this on the landscape that they're on, aren't they? And yeah. and and the buildings almost feel that you know that there's rot, rust and rot, and that feels like even the buildings are diseased. Uh, flaking paint, scabbings, you know, yeah. I, I love all this stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's always a joy to, to see that when it comes in. And Dave spends a lot of time, I think, as well, thinking about colour choices mm. for individual episodes. If there's a certain emotional mood to it, um, you know, obviously the different stories have different tones. He spends quite a bit of time thinking about, you know, how best to... to to reflect that, you know, uh, does this feel like it should have a documentary feel? Or does mm. this feel like, like you were saying earlier, you know, like that War of the Worlds thing? Maybe I'll go for something. I mean, I've got a, a term for one for for one of the things he does. I call it rust punk, you know. So, so oh, can we can we go rust punk on this? So that that might mean an oil refinery <laughs> or yeah. uh, or uh, warehouses or uh, scaffolding falling down, you know as versus a sort of brickwork or concrete with weeds coming through it, that kind yeah. of that kind of feel. Um, I think that's why it works so beautifully, because many, many people have, have tried to take on the Dark Judges, but I think too many people have been too, um, what's the word? They've, they've honoured Bolland's cleanness too much. Yeah. And, and to really make the Dark Judges something more and something different and worth doing visually... You've got to do something different than just try and recreate Bolland in a slightly different art style, and you know Dave's done it in spades. Yeah, to totally, and and the color palette obviously adds another mm. another layer to it. I'm going back to something you said just now about um, the black humor. I mean, that's been deliberate fairly, you know, right from the beginning because it just struck me really, you know, um, if you're gonna do this stuff you got to be careful it isn't just a series of atrocities you know yeah. um we just came through a period in horror films i mean you and i are a little bit older we probably enjoy the kind of splatter aesthetics of late 70s early 80s you know yeah, golden so. age stuff but we've just come out of the period of i suppose you call it like torture porn you know mm -hmm. saw movies hostile that stuff with the dark judges, you know, you've got you've got to lighten it with some humour, humanity, hope, that sort of thing. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a series of them. It's them wandering around doing the most repulsive, repellent things imaginable. And 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 what the hell is the point of that? You know, it's yeah. just a, a series of atrocities. There's no there's no lesson to be learned. There's no moral. There's no philosophy. So we tried to tried to kind of bring humour to it and humanity generally see things from the street view as it were from the little people in the story so initially it was deliberate to not have the dark judges in it yeah. that often because again you can amplify the horror because imagine if they were real you know uh, sorry this sounds really stupid but if they existed in our world it's just how uncanny and and, and weird it would be so i kind of tried to look at it from that point of view you know um from our point of view from the victim's point of view yeah and also build you know narratives into it of of, of humanity and unlikely heroism and hope you know yeah. people say oh we all know how this story ends and it's kind of well maybe you don't but but part of it is as well um let's talk about what it sounds like a cliche what it means to be human yeah 
but have the dark judges as the backdrop to that perhaps and show how kind of they amplify our own failings as well you know mm. rather than just let's just you know let's have you know uh, 60 pages of genocide it's like <laughs> jeez you know christ <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that would make me want to weep. Eternal champion, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. <laughs> because that's you know. basically what that would be. Well, if 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 you did ever get into the um, the realms of Moorcock adaptation, Clint Langley is a massive Elric fan. Wow, he's, he's an Elric super fan. I certainly when I first did a Dark, you know, the first Dark Judges thing, I remember writing the first one and just going, "Holy shit!" You know, I'm. Br- <laughs> Bricking yourself because this is iconic territory. Yeah. Uh, you know, after you did the first one, it kind of things start slotting into place, and you get a measure of it. And and going back to Moorcock earlier, I think if 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 I was lucky enough to be able to do an adaptation or play in that sandpit, I think it might be a similar thing. Really, the the first few pages, you'd be thinking. Jeez, <laughs> you know, go outside, take a deep breath, and come back in. You know, because yeah. uh, I mean, twelve-year-old me obviously would be massively thrilled. You know, I'm a fanboy. What can I say? Yeah, but I'd want to bring something new to it as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the wonderful thing about about doing this podcast is I get to talk to other fanboys, <laughs> um, which is you know we never run out of things to say. But uh, you know what? Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me in virtual Derry and Tom's. Maybe one day it'd be lovely if we could go to the real Derry and Tom's. Yeah. Maybe even do the rituals of infinity like we originally planned. Um, but uh, you know, let's let's see see what happens time wise. But thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been brilliant. It's been really great to pick your brains. And uh, maybe we'll see you on the show again. Yeah. Cheers. Take care. See you soon. The unstable matter situation was confined in a rough radius of 10 miles. Here there was no grey ash, but boiling colour and an ear-shattering, unearthly noise. Falstaff found it hard to adjust his eyes and ears to the UMS. He was familiar with the sight and sound of disrupted unstable matter, but he never got used to it. Great spiralling gouts of stuff would twist hundreds of feet into the air and then fall back again. The sounds were almost indescribable, like the roar of a thousand tidal waves, the screech of vast sheets of metal being tortured and twisted, the rumble of gigantic landslides. Around the perimeter of this terrifying example of nature's death throes, there buzzed land craft and helicopters. A big adjuster could be seen trained on the UMS, the men and machines completely dwarfed by the swirling fury of the unstable elements. Thanks to Kek W for being a great co-host on this show. It really was a treat for me to have an alumni of the galaxy's greatest comic join me to chew the fat over all things Moorcock. We tried to hook up a year or so ago, but after a few false starts the plague happened and I let things slip, so I'm really grateful to Kek for being game for another try. Now, before we proceed further, I want to give a big shout out to our Jupidero, Alex. Alex dropped us a line to say, I'm glad to support you in this podcast. 
It's really refreshing to see a podcast like this and it's made me dig into my Mocock collection again. I'd say my first introduction was Dorian Hawkmoon, but it was really Jerry Cornelius who caught my imagination. I loved the fact he was an out-and-out bisexual, enjoyed his life, but was still a bastard at heart, really. The final programme was seared into early memory and how he interacted with everyone, including Miss Brunner. I think it branded in my mind the sheer and utter chaos along with the lack of fluidity in law and how the two could clash. And then you have this champion who has to balance the two. Good and evil, not as interesting. I've been listening to your final programme episodes again recently and in the second part I'd like to correct one thing. You mentioned at the start about transgenderism and the rows over on Twitter. To add my input, transgenderism is a term that somewhat bugs me. It's often used very negatively by those opposed to transgender folks simply trying to live their lives. I'm one of them, and while it's amusing to see how far these people will go to try and see the transgender agenda, the truth is, we don't have one. Our agenda, if any, is simply letters B. That is why J.K. Rowling is such a conflicting person, and her doubling down hasn't helped. I appreciate that you didn't go into anything negative yourself, and I'll continue to support your efforts, as it's very entertaining, but I thought I'd correct your use of that word, as it's not a pleasant word to be hearing. Thanks for hearing me out. Alex, I'm really grateful to you for letting us know how our words made you feel. At the end of the day, we're largely a bunch of old duffers talking on the fly, and sometimes we're not close enough to the detail of a thing, to realise that language we may naively think of as innocuous may be hurtful to others. Thanks for talking to us, letting us know, and thanks for your ongoing support. We also have a new patron to thank, Robert. We had a quick natter, and Robert said, My mother is from Hamburg, Germany. She and her older sister came to the USA in 1958. My aunt Isa returned to Germany in the early 1980s with her three children. The oldest, Mark, three years my elder, he learned German and how to be an AD&D dungeon master at the same time. He was a big reader of all kinds of books, fantasy included. In 1987, my mother sent me to stay with them for the summer in the university town of Tübingen, near Stuttgart. I had plenty to do there, had my first kiss, travelled here and there and everywhere in the country, but I had plenty of time to read. I took a few bites of books that were out of my league at the time. War and Peace... Vanity Fair, John le Carre's A Perfect Spy, all three of those remain favourites these many years later, and The Nomad of Time, an omnibus edition of the Oswald Bastable books. The setting, British India, intrigued me, coming from a home where we spent time watching The Far Pavilions and The Jewel in the Crown, among other series broadcast on public television in the USA and courtesy of British production houses, Thames, Yorkshire TV, BBC, ITV, even Channel 4 perhaps. Doctor Who was and remains my favourite. My cousin Mark also had a copy of the three Coram novels, though I can't remember if they were the sword set or the item plus animal second set. Anyway, I picked up the Nomad book, began reading and could not put it down. When I returned to the USA, I looked at Mocock's name and discovered an edition of the first four Cornelius novels. Again, these were way over my head, but I dug in. My goodness, they blew my mind. I even felt sort of cool because of the swinging London setting and the total abandonment of typical narrative structure by the time we hit the second book. A year later, I went to Britain on a school trip, starting in London and ending in Glasgow. I perhaps unwisely stuffed my duffel with books I couldn't find in the States, boy they were heavy, 
and chief among them were the brass Hartmann stories. The City in the Autumn Stars, the brothel in Rosenstrasse, the dances at the end of time. Lucky young fellow I. Back in America, I kept scouting the stores and came up with copies of the Three Eternal Champion novels, the D.A.W. Elric series, Behold the Man, the Second and Third Cornelius Connections, Breakfast in the Ruins, Gloriana, Mother London, and more. I later picked up the Chinese agent, King of the City, a gift from an ex-girlfriend, and so on. I was thoroughly pleased with Mocock's willingness to pursue just about any genre or style of fiction, to go at it with a certain faith mixed with subversion, an irony mixed with sincerity. That appreciation continues to grow in me. Thanks again for the wonderful show, and regards to Phil and the rest of the crew. Thank you, Robert, for your support. I love that we all have that one thing in common, the fervent, gotta catch em all plunge down the Mocock rabbit hole. It's time now to thank our chaos engineers, hard at work in the belly of the ship. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Fred, Dave, Jim, John, John Watt, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Malpertwee, and Ben. You may have seen from our Twitter account that Jim has launched his project, Urish's Horde, the guide to Elric collectibles on Kickstarter. Available as print and PDF, it features input from a wide range of luminaries including Rob Weir of Tigers of Pantang, Alan Davey of Hawkwind, and cover artist extremo Robert Gould. I'll link to the Kickstarter in the blog post. Please do check it out and support Jim's work. And to our Jugaderos over at the Terminal Cafe, working to gain that winning hand. Clarky, Craig, Loz, Matthew, Randall, Steve, Tom, Ian and Alex. And of course, to our patron demons. Master Picanti, supporter extraordinaire. On the recommendation of Brute of Lashmar, he's found a couple of Danis books in the Don Blass's library. I wonder what he made of them. To Lord Norman, Baker on the Rocks. Those woods are bad to lead in a merry dance and causing literal chaos as they argue between themselves about the correct pronunciation of a certain flowery treat and also which order to apply the jam and cream. And to the lapsed gamer, he's training up a brand new Darcy hunting dog. The militant ranks of the Sufus Prime, closers of the landlord's gates, will rue the day. And to Dreadmort Main, currently caged in a cage of her own making, called Cage. I need you to get me out of this. And Sir Neil of Burton, the Destiny Knight, currently mind-bonding with the brain trees of Theta Four. And last but not least, of course, to Robert, whose visage is not yet clear to me. I sense something in the midst of that miasma. It's taking shape. Right, that's about it from me for now. Stay tuned for Chapter 7 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly after the transition. But before I go, don't forget you can follow and gab with us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too. We're out there on most podcatchers. If you have a favourite and we're not on it, drop me a line and I'll see what I can do about it. But stay safe and I'll see you soon on the Moonbeam Roads. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, Chapter 7 An Effective Defence. We did a mighty job of clearing the table between us, but afterwards no more wine was forthcoming, and, 
After policing the remains of the meal, Sebastian and Carl retired, leaving us sitting by the enormous fire. The black iron surround emanated heat in a continuous wave, and with my full belly and sore feet I tired quickly. There was no talking to Morton, he was grumbling and preoccupied. Vincent and Friedrich were talking revenge and how best to serve it. I decided I needed to take a walk to clear my head. Outside of the keep, the wind had dropped, leaving the night air heavy with moisture. It settled immediately on my face and clothes and ran into my mouth. It tasted bitter and of decay. I regretted leaving my cap in the bedchamber but felt comforted by the heavy weight of my familiar sidearm. The Webley Mark 9 service revolver had stayed with me throughout my travels, and fortunately I had seldom been forced to draw it. Although a thing of cold, starkly designed beauty, it is not a subtle weapon, and as a demonstration of power, it could draw precisely the wrong sort of attention were I to wave it about willy-nilly. Besides, the day I met Hildebrand, I was not tooled for an expedition, and the six bullets the revolver carried had now become two. I still carried the empty cartridges in a soft velvet bag in the hope that I should find a way to reuse them, but the opportunity had never arisen. Reassured, I took a heavy brass lantern from its hook by the door, carefully adjusted the wick so as not to attract too much attention to myself, and picked my footsteps carefully around the wall towards the outhouses. I was wearing my faithful slippers on my feet as, caked in salve as they were, I did not wish to damage the soft leather innards of my boots. Sadly, each stone and uneven rock I stepped upon aggravated my sore feet through the insubstantial rubber soles, and soon the tartan was sodden with moisture. The nature of the dense night air seemed to change as I passed through it. It took on an almost tangible consistency, and I felt as if I were powering my way through it, much like an ironclad ship would cleave through a heavy brine. The analogy pleased me, and gifted me the much-needed confidence to press on. Clutching my sidearm tightly I made for the outhouses, steering a course from memory, as visibility was poor and deteriorating further by the second. I fancied that I glimpsed indistinct shapes slipping through eddies in the fog and heard the faint creaking of timbers and clatter of wheels on stone, and over it a wheezing sound like that of a great diseased pair of lungs struggling to suck breath from the air. My resolve was close to breaking when a lumpen silhouette loomed over me in the gloom. I choked back a cry and stood rooted in fear. The shape did not move, and momentarily I realised that, though it felt to have taken an edge, I had crossed the twenty or so feet from the portico and reached my destination. The first of the buildings was an extensive set of stables. A dozen horses were adequately quartered beneath its shingles. I was greeted by nervous whinnies as I made my way down the row of stalls to the stock at the far end. An adjoining stone hut served as a tack room. It was piled high with barding of a familiar design. Pearlescent black and okra, fashioned in the likeness of scales. I turned back to the stalls. Six magnificent black horses were housed that looked to fit the finely crafted harness and tack that accompanied the heaped armour to a T. I hurried onward to the next building. The door was stiff but I forced it open. My lantern illuminated a veritable armoury, but there was little sign of any artisan's tools. This looked like plunder, and amongst the pillage, some old and worn, some new and fashionable, were several glistening helms and breastplates. 
they were of the order of the snake. The finest example was of superior craftsmanship to the others. I surmised it to have belonged to the occupant of the richly appointed coach. Of the former occupants of the armour, there was no sign. But by now, my nerves were ragged, and I hastened back towards the keep at speed. The hall was empty when I returned. Back in my chamber, I divested myself of my soggy slippers and gingerly pulled on my boots. After packing my haversack and donning my coat and scabbard, I determined to head back to the hall and attempt to locate my companions. As I exited the bottom of the stairwell and entered the gallery, I felt a familiar sensation, although I could not pinpoint in my mind from whence the physical memory originated. An ingress in the wall appeared to be the source of some invisible emanation. It struck me that the sensation was similar in some way to proximity with the ornithopter's power source, but more closely resembled that what felt when in Hildebrand's workshop. The light from the main hall penetrated only a few feet, but revealed a recessed passage that I had somehow failed to notice earlier, seeing only a plain wall. Stepping hesitantly into the opening, I saw that it ran for a dozen or so yards before caving down into gloom. A recessed door was set into the stone, halfway down on the left. Now curious, as well as concerned for my travelling companions, I made for it. The door opened freely to reveal a cavernous library come study. The walls were shelved from floor to ceiling and packed tightly with volumes of all shapes, sizes and states of decay. I was drawn to a desk at the far end, illuminated by dying embers in a stone hearth. A strange apparatus of tubes and crystal defied my attempts to fathom its function, but as my fingertips caressed a number of slight depressions on a smooth surface, the emanation ceased. I heaved the strange contraption into my haversack and returned to the dim passage. By now, my senses were becoming finely attuned to my situation. I have found many times in the past that I have an affinity for the strange and unusual, or at least my subconscious mind does, and my facility for negotiating uncommon situations belies my somewhat ordinary upbringing and civilised breeding. I determined to locate my companions and confer as to our course of action. The Count was evidently hiding a great deal and, although not a friend of the Dark Empire, may not be as philanthropic as his proffered hospitality suggested. The exposed position of the Gravenberg Keep appeared by daylight to leave it acutely vulnerable, yet I had a needling suspicion that an assault from without was the least of my concerns. The unnatural composition of the heavy dew hanging about the exterior of the Keep reinforced this feeling. It was familiar, 